1: Welcome back to another edition of the Spurs Chat Podcast, where in this edition, I'm joined by a very special guest, journalist and broadcaster, Ben Jacobs. Ben, thanks so much for joining us on the channel. How are you? Good evening, Chris. Very
3: well, indeed. We're making a Christmas journey back home. So I've made a big error, I've realised, and it's not intentional because I'm wearing a Christmas jumper. And I promise every Spurs fan listening, it is only a dinosaur. But I'm well aware it could be misconstrued as specifically being Gunnosaurus, which is obviously the last thing I should be wearing on this podcast. So before anyone flags it in the chat, it is a regular dinosaur with a gift in its mouth with no affiliation, I swear, to Gunnosaurus.
1: No, no. Thanks for clearing that up. (laughs) Now, Ben, before we come on to talk about Tottenham, Antonio Conte, and of course, the transfer window, which is only 10 days away, um, just want to talk about your career because you've had one hell of a career so far covered multiple World Cups, Olympic Games, Grand Slams and Majors, interviewed the likes of Lionel Messi, Usain Bolt, Roger Federer and Tiger Woods, beat Diego Maradona in a kick-up challenge, (laughs) boxed with uh, Mike Tyson, a former senior journalist with in Sports, former sports presenter with the Arabian Radio Network. Uh, Former sports reporter for BBC Five Live and Radio One. Also worked for BT Sport, BBC Final Score, Talk Sport, ESPN and now currently working for CBS Sports. That is one hell of a career.
3: (laughs) It always sounds more impressive when you have spells of your career as a freelancer because naturally you can stock up all of these prestigious names. But as you say, right now I'm at CBS. We've got Champions League and Serie A. In particular, so we've enjoyed covering Tottenham in weeks gone by. And I suppose I started out with really just a desire to get to games to commentate. I was a radio commentator when I was very young. That took me to the BBC. Then when I moved to the Middle East, it was a very interesting perspective because I got to branch out and cover a range of sports. Being sports in particular, we had Olympics, Formula One, Premier League, La Liga, League and it allows you to diversify. And strangely, as well, the day of Tottenham, you develop quite a strong relationship because when a player or a club comes out to the Middle East, it's a bit more foreign to them. So you're able to connect with them in a more relaxed environment. Sometimes it's in the off-season as well, and players are on holiday and they always want a round of golf or they want to know where they can eat. And it's a small condensed market. So you develop relationships there. And I found myself covering a lot of takeovers because when I was out in the Middle East, The likes of Manchester City got taken over by Abu Dhabi. Obviously, Arsenal have a connection with Dubai, Newcastle United and PIF. And now at CBS, it's the other way around. And we're an America-based broadcaster. And over half the Premier League has got some kind of US-based investment. So that's proved quite handy as well. So I enjoy getting to the games. And I think what's really important as a journalist, because sometimes we get misconstrued, misrepresented through sound bites on twitter or somebody ultimately doesn't see a broadcast but reads something that you write it's always very helpful and fun and enjoyable to come on great podcasts like this and engage and have people hear you out ask their questions answer them directly because it's that two way relationship i think that's so important between the media and fan bases because as media gets bigger and more clickbaity it's very important, I think, especially with the transfer window, to understand the context behind it.
1: Absolutely. Um, before we go any further, Ben, what was it like talking to Lionel Messi? Because, of course, just won the World Cup, probably the greatest player of all time. What an experience that was. Well, at the World Cup, Messi was
3: swamped, so nobody got a significant amount of access but I actually did a cover shoot with Lionel Messi when I was out in the Middle East in that astonishing season where he scored almost 100 goals and I think two overriding things definitely stuck out in my mind and it's the same now really. One is he's quite shy and very humble and sometimes you expect the name to kind of waltz in and then be surrounded by an entourage. But with Messi, his key representative remains his father, who's obviously going to be key as well in in all likelihood renewing that deal at PSG for another year, maybe even two. And with Ronaldo, for example, he would only come in and do shoots with media if it was television or photography or even marketing, which I did for the Russia World Cup and he was involved in some of the activations that I was part of on the creative side and you'd get a Ronaldo double right up until the last minute then Ronaldo would come in and he'd be paid to do one thing and that was that whereas with Messi the big difference was that he was invested and when for example I filmed with Messi on a refugee based campaign around a UEFA pitch that was opening at Zatari refugee camp And Messi was part of the launch. And it was basically him on the television, in the actual creative this is, telling all of the kids within the camp to come and play football. And they all ended up running onto the new pitch. And then Messi was there at the end. And during that whole process and during the cover shoot I did with him, and even during the World Cup when he interacted with the media in terms of the press conferences that he did or some flash interviews, you get a lot more honesty, but you also get a lot more time and investment. He asks questions back. He remembers faces and names. So for me personally, there's an element of language barrier, certainly when we did the cover shoot, although he does understand and speak English, but prefers not to do anything in that particular language. And there's a few out there, you can tell when you're asking the question, Bielsa at Leeds always used to be like that as well. You'd start asking the question, the translator would be ready, and immediately you knew as a journalist that he was way more fluent than he was making out, even in those early days. So Messi very humble, and pleasurable to deal with because you get that authenticity, but very different to perhaps the character that a lot of his fans think he is. Naturally, what we do is we take a footballer and we put a personality, we put a voice, we put a demeanour on them, and it's based upon the magic that we see on the football field. And that's why I suppose some people say, never meet your idols. But with Messi, there's definitely a contrast. And you see quite a shy boy at times, even though he's now a veteran. So when he's in his comfort zone, when he's surrounded by his people, of course he leads by example, of course social media's helped him stamp his personality and allow him that direct route to his fan base. But when he's just kind of in a mixed zone, when he's in a post-match environment, maybe through a mix of a lack of trust because there's such a high volume of people surrounding him so he never gets that much privacy, but also I think it's innate in his personality. He is just that little bit shy and that's quite endearing in its own way to see a superstar that big, but also immediately when you interact with them off the football field, realise yep. and appreciate instantly that they are only human like the rest
1: of us. Ben, who, who have been your favourite Spurs um, players or managers to interview or interact with over the years? Really
3: enjoyed Pochettino during his time there, found him an open book and I think some media perhaps feel like there was the Pochettino in the press and then there was the Pochettino on the training ground and other people maybe think he got a bit sick and tired at times of doing the same media cycles but I found him very frank very likable with a good sense of humor didn't always take himself too seriously player wise Glenn Hoddle As a Leicester-born Leicester fan, Gary Lineker has to spring to mind as well. But I grew up really invested in football as the Premier League turned towards the foreign entity that it is now. And when, of course, the first foreign players came in, they were much more of a luxury, so they had a wow factor. And a few names over that three- or four-year period would always spring out. I think there was Zola at Chelsea, Ravinelli, or perhaps even somebody like a Jürgen Klinsmann maybe resonated with me. So if we're talking about Spurs, when those two came, and it was bizarre with the Middlesbrough case, because obviously they ended up getting to two cup finals and going down with a ton of stars like Eugenio, Ravinelli, and they couldn't click. But from a Spurs perspective, I think Klinsmann was an odd one, because I think as a kid, you're growing up, as someone that's watched a lot of national team football and in comes Klinsman and I'm not a Spurs fan. A lot of my family are Spurs fans. And I was almost annoyed. They signed him to begin with similar actually to Burkamp and Arsenal, because I knew he was good, but I thought he was going to be one of those players that irritated me. And then when Klinsman came in at Spurs and did his kind of knee slide dives and threw himself around a bit and became a real poacher I think that really rang true to me of the quality that the Premier League had. And you couldn't help but be compelled by a player like that. So in terms of foreign Spurs players in the newer Premier League era, when it was just developing, definitely somebody like Klinsman. Always used to like Darren Anderton as well, because that was the position that I played as a kid. And maybe now people look back and say that there were more skilled and finessed players but anderton had a delivery on him he had a little bit of flair about him he had a decent touch i don't know whether tottenham fans listening will disagree and say that over time he became a little bit inconsistent but for me watching him there was always a affinity with him because that was where i played so i watched him the touch the movement the delivery, the set pieces. And I kind of wanted to emulate that to some extent. And Steve McManaman is another good example of that. So that was the sort of generation of Tottenham that I was watching. And they were entertaining players because they weren't just of a high level. But in addition to that, they all just seemed to have quite strong personalities as well.
1: An incredible signing that was, um, Jürgen Klingsman in the summer of 94. Uh, remains one of my all-time favourite Tottenham Hotspur players. And I always say on this channel, Ben, that I think for me, that was like my last wow signing. The the, the, the player that really wowed me as, uh, as a player that came in uh, to Spurs. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, Tottenham Hotspur so far this season. Of course, we're, we're back in Premier League action on Boxing Day against Brentford. But what have you made of Tottenham's season overall? Because we're sitting in the top four. Uh, We're in the last 16 of the Champions League, about to play AC Milan in February and March. Uh, We're out of the League Cup and then we've got Portsmouth now in the third round of the FA Cup. What have you made of Tottenham's season so far?
3: Very winnable as far as Portsmouth is concerned. And overall, even though there were wobbles in the Champions League, the most important thing is that you get through to the last 16. And I think that that's a decent enough draw for Tottenham, given who else is in the competition. Milan, as was proven when they played Chelsea over two games, can be a little bit leaky and inconsistent. So Tottenham will be very happy with that. And going away to Milan first on Valentine's Day gives them a real opportunity to then bring something back to the home leg. And I genuinely think that they're favourites for that tie. It all just sort of depends on what kind of Milan show up but they're there in terms of the defensive frailties to absolutely attack. And Tottenham have got plenty of weapons in that area. So I think a lot was made about the group stage of the Champions League and how Tottenham at times limped through, but it's all in the past. And the only thing you care about ultimately in that type of tournament, same with the League Cup and the FA Cup, is if you get through. And now they're into the knockout stage and it's all about the future rather than the past. Whereas with the league, naturally, everything you do in the first half of the season ends up impacting the second half of the season. And if we look at the league table, I think that Tottenham would have taken this before a ball was kicked, but we're not at the halfway stage. And that's what I find quite intriguing about the World Cup break coming so early. So if Tottenham, after 19 games and a busy festive period, were still in fourth place, and potentially level in inverted commas with Manchester United because they've got a game in hand but three points clear at the moment but if we make everybody the same at a halfway stage if you say Spurs were fourth halfway through the season I think you take that because my feeling at the beginning of the season is that this is about stability and it's about backing Conte in terms of not just the project but his authority over transfers and it was a case of spending for depth having qualified for the champions league and now they have to back that up going forward so tottenham need to get in that position really where the fan base and obviously the football club itself feel like they're near automatic qualifiers for the Champions League season on season on season and that's not only important for the kind of glory and the games that every fan wants it's also vital because then you start doing your budgets on it so it's actually more damning say for Liverpool this season in sixth place or Chelsea this season in eighth place because if they don't make Champions League they were there they assume that they're going to be in the top four pretty much at worst because history tells you that they virtually always end up there And then you have an Arsenal and a Tottenham and maybe now a Newcastle kind of vying for that last spot. And Manchester United are improving as well. So Tottenham need to elevate. They need to find a way of climbing above the pack, chasing for fourth place. And instead, kind of do what Chelsea have been doing at a bare minimum and get into that third spot because there's usually a bit of a cushion between third and fourth. So if they can lead from the front, if you like, and stay within the top four, that's a good season. It's nine wins out of 15. And clearly the disappointment comes in those four losses. But I think the other factor too is just the goals conceded. So even in games where Tottenham have been able to claw back, they've made life difficult for themselves. They've had a number of 2-0 deficits where they have been able to fight back. They had that dramatic victory at Bournemouth away from home. They had the 4-3 against 10-man Leeds as well. So those kind of games are good in the sense they're entertaining. It's almost like Kevin Keegan's Newcastle United for those that remember that particular squad. But it's very un conte like in the sense that Antonio Conte doesn't play to outscore opponents. So even though Tottenham have got those weapons and the character is very commendable, it's more clean sheets needed. It's less goals conceded. And then you have the weapons to start winning games more comfortably. And I don't think we've seen enough of that. So that's one disappointment. The other warning shot, I suppose, for me, is just when you look at the amount of big games that they haven't taken points from, and that may define whether they end up in the top four or not. So it was clearly disappointing to lose 2-1 at home to Liverpool. There was the home loss to Newcastle United as well. There was the away defeat to Manchester United. And, of course, dare I mention, I'm just going to say October the 1st, and I think Arsenal fans will know what I mean and Tottenham fans will know what I mean but I won't go any further than that because of the podcast that I'm on so when you add all of that up over quite a short space of time it's kind of just October onwards there's a number of big fixtures where Spurs have walked away empty-handed so that's a disappointment as well so very positive starts of the season they're where they want to be if we only look at league table but they're not winning the big games and they're conceding too many goals so those are the two areas they need to address in the second half of the season otherwise they will find themselves falling down the table
1: Ben what do you think Antonio Conte's aim is at the end of this season because you know Spurs of course finished fourth last season we're playing Champions League again Uh, of course last season we were playing in the Europa Conference League so You could say in the 14 months that Conte's uh, been here, he's taken us from Europa Conference League to Champions League football. Is he going to be happy with Spurs uh, finishing fourth without a trophy at the end of this season?
3: I think so, providing that behind the scenes, there's a strategy behind it. And therein lies the previous point that I made that this isn't only front facing, from what I understand. Sources have said very clearly that the trust in him and his team to spend and have more authority is with that view to being that automatic qualifier for Champions League football. So if you do it back to back, then you get the continued investment. The challenge is if they finish outside of the top four and they spent big over the summer and I expect them to be relatively busy in January as well. So then if they finish fifth or worst, how does Daniel Levy react? Because... Everything now has shifted to the current structure at the football club with Conte ultimately having much more say, I think, than any other previous Spurs manager under Daniel Levy, certainly in terms of the budget that he wants. And then it's a more collaborative process in actually bringing in the names. But it's kind of pressure on the manager and his recruitment team in many ways when you get that kind of authority from Daniel Levy because Levy's not used to having these kind of windows. Tottenham did their business relatively early and they signed a range of players over the last window. Some of them are kind of into your starting eleven, and many of them are depth. So what Tottenham need to do now is find a way of being in the conversation for more marquee names. And I think that that is stage two, either in January or in the summer. Are they in the conversation for an automatic starter, for a box office name, for a big money name? Where are they in the race when we hear about Manchester City and Chelsea and Liverpool constantly mentioned for players, let's just say like... Declan Rice, Jude Bellingham, even Endrick, the youngster that ended up going to Real Madrid. And very rarely do we hear Spurs mentioned once the fee becomes 75, 80, 90 million. And that is partially because they believe that they've got a deep squad and some of the priorities will naturally be around, persuading Kane to re-sign, Son to re-sign. And you've also got Richarlison, who had a phenomenal World Cup, if he replicates that at Spurs, it's effectively like a new signing too. So there's positives. But I think the next step is around established, quality, big name, marquee signings, if you like. And can Spurs beat off a rival who's either above them in the table or around them in the table? And are they prepared to dig a bit deeper into the pockets in order to do that? And if they are it's the next step. So it's almost like you buy big to start with because you've qualified for the Champions League, so you need depth. And then once you've done that, you be a bit more discerning. And when you're more discerning, you start allocating a player that you know will improve the squad. But of course, they're a more established name. And then you've actually got to go out and win that race in the transfer market, which is not easy. And that's the next step, I think. And if Tottenham can pull a couple of those type of more established signings, the players, I suppose, that Every Spurs fan says, yes, they're in my starting 11. Not maybe, not debate, not depending on the formation, not depending on the game management. Is it the type of player that is just in a starting 11 because it's the spine of your team? And if they add a name like that, ultimately like a Kane is at the moment, then they elevate again. So I don't think there's disappointment if Spurs qualify. For the Champions League, I think there's a mixture of celebration and relief because it's a job done. It should be the bare minimum because if they don't qualify for the Champions League, that's when, as I understand it behind the scenes, there's more of a budgetary problem going forwards. And that's the irony, really, of football that you want Champions League, but you also need champions league and once you've got champions league for a couple of seasons your budgets end up being based on them so then if you lose champions league as chelsea or liverpool might find then you become relatively restricted in the market until you get it back and i suppose manchester united have found the same thing yes they've spent big But what was their budget at the beginning of the summer for a new manager in Eric Ten Hag? It was only £120 And then there was the whole Ferrari and saga over Frankie de Jong and Cody Gakpo, and they didn't get either. And suddenly the Glazers dug a bit deeper into their pocket. But Manchester United are teetering on the edge in the next two, three windows now of financial fair play because they've not got that regular season-on-season in the last decade, Champions League football, to inject. Tottenham are a bit different because they haven't always had it. They've been in and out. So I don't think that Tottenham will have assumed from a budgetary point of view that everything's based upon Champions League. But if you get a couple of seasons where you get Champions League, the budget changes and that's how you evolve as a football club.
1: Do you think, though, Ben, that um, Antonio Conte is going to be happy just finishing in those Champions League spots? And but I, and I'm not dissing that by saying just finishing in those Champions League spots. We all love Champions League football. But historically, Antonio Conte is a winner. He's a born winner. He's won trophies everywhere he's gone. And he's a now man. He wants players in that are going to walk straight into this team. Do you think he's going to be backed um, in that regard? Because... His contract expires on the 30th of June. That is 190 days away from now. Um, Many reports are stating that Spurs um, can extend the contract by another year. Uh, They're now offering him another contract with a £1 million per year pay rise. Is there any truth in that? And, And how confident are you that Conte will be Spurs manager next season?
3: I've always said that Spurs are quite calm about the situation. It's exactly the same as Harry Kane. And Conte can play the game here a little bit as well. He doesn't need to rush into signing. What he can do is leave Spurs hanging a little bit and start asking for things and see whether the proof is in the pudding. So January is a good example of that. He can demand that Tottenham buy those established players that he can throw straight into his side to ensure they qualify for Champions League and test the water. And obviously, if Daniel Levy says, no, you had a big budget last window, you can only sign two for X amount, then that might impact the contract negotiations as well. So there is a link mid-season between how the recruitment pans out, what the investment is, and when Antonio Conte chooses to sign, which is why he's in no rush to do so. And Tottenham are expected to offer him a deal which will include a pay rise it will be as you say around a million a year with the length of the contract I think Tottenham want to tie him down and in doing so prove that there is stability at the club so this won't be some Alan Pardew seven-year deal but I expect it to be at least three years with one option to extend and then the extension itself has been a bit of a mystery to be perfectly honest with you. There are certainly some sources that say that Spurs could automatically trigger it by a year, but there's not many out there that say that they just will because it feels then like an act of desperation. So you can do that with a player like Rashford, Manchester United have done it. It buys you a little bit of time to get a deal, but ultimately Tottenham and Conte will be talking about a new deal. So if there's any ability for Tottenham just to add extra time, then that doesn't send the right message that both parties are in any kind of agreement or heading in the right direction. Because if they were, then the manager would have already signed a new deal and any extension goes out of the window. So I think that it's right of Conte to wait and see how the project's developing both on a monetary sense how backed he is, but also where Tottenham are. I think he'll be absolutely happy with Champions League football because I think that what he craves is to win the Champions League and in a bizarre way, and hopefully from Tottenham's perspective, they show it this season, it's kind of easier to win the Champions League than the Premier League at the moment if you're Tottenham Hotspur. They've got to make a huge leap in form and depth and funding in order to catch Manchester City. And unfortunately, the biggest enemy in North London is also doing very well too. And when you add Newcastle to the mix, I think that it's tough to see Spurs as getting 95 points in the Premier League in the next season or two, maybe mid eighties, maybe even high eighties. And when Leicester won the Premier League, that was enough. But at the moment you're needing 90 to 95 to win the Premier League because Manchester City and Liverpool in the past few seasons have just been that good. Tottenham are not there yet. And I think Antonio Conte knows that. So then is there any comfort finishing second or third or qualifying for Champions League with time to spare? There is if you do it season on season on season because you start showing that stability. But I think at the moment, it's really just from what I understand anyway, talking to those close to the management team. It's just about making sure that they're no worse than fourth because that's the foundation, both financially and strategically on what they're building from.
1: Surely, though, uh, Ben, Conte will want to be putting trophies in the Cabinet of Tottenham because, you know, we're starved of trophies. 2008 was our last one uh, winning the League Cup.
3: Yeah, I mean, everybody wants a trophy. Newcastle United haven't won a trophy in a while. They're desperate for one as well. But football's changing and I'd be interested to see what people listening would prefer. Just a trophy like a League Cup. Not possible now, but just putting that out there because that's the less... Glamorous one, if you like, comparative to the FA Cup versus fourth place and Champions League. And I think that most Tottenham fans would take the excitement of pipping Arsenal last season and finishing fourth versus lifting a League Cup. And one gives you Champions League and one doesn't. So I understand that trophies are extremely important and sentimental and provide a fairy tale and often ignite a season for teams that are not challenging for things. And I know all about that as somebody that was born in Leicester. We obviously played Tottenham in a League Cup final. The least said about that from my perspective, the better. But thankfully, from Leicester's point of view, we had a great couple of League Cup victories as well under Martin O'Neill. So it means something. But trophies these days and Arsene Wenger was the first to say it, wasn't here. Arsenal? Not the be-all and the end-all. In a cabinet they are, and to a fan base they are, because it's about winning something. It's about celebrating something. It's about having a moment with your club. It's about going to a neutral stadium and ultimately being jubilant and feeling like everything boils down to that one moment. And I love that as a fan. But from Daniel Levy's point of view and from Antonio Conte's point of view, it wouldn't surprise me if they're more dispassionate and distant from that. And of course, they want to lift those trophies. So I'm in no way suggesting that they don't care about trophies, because that would be a ridiculous thing to say. But it's more that you have a balance in modern football now. And your primary concern is Champions League football and the finances that come with that and stabilising the football club. And obviously, It's hand in hand because if Tottenham continue to automatically qualify for the Champions League, it means that they're one of the best four teams in the Premier League and therefore they are one of the favourites every year to be winning trophies. And as you stabilise and then build more depth because of that, when you then rotate... You've got stronger players and they're hungry to have their opportunities and they can take you further and further in cup competitions. So that is a factor and it can be linked, but it's going to take time. So this is the key question is do Spurs invest their strategy, their time, their energy, their resource, their goals, their budgets in being an automatic Champions League qualifier or Do they say, actually, we need to win a trophy. Let's focus on the FA Cup. Let's play more of our senior players in the early stages of the FA Cup or the Carabao Cup. And then what happens if they get injured? What happens if they still get knocked out and it dents morale? So there's all these kind of considerations. But yeah, of course, he wants trophies. Who wouldn't want a trophy? But I still think the most important aim this season and beyond remains for now being in the top four.
1: I don't think I could probably get my head around it, though, Ben, if uh, if Conte was to leave without winning a trophy. You go from mm-hmm. Pochettino to Jose Mourinho, then to Antonio Conte, three fantastic elite managers and not win anything. Um, I don't think I could get my head around that. Uh, what did you make of the Athletics report uh, stating um, sources uh, close to the club less optimistic about a deal uh, being done with Conte and the club are not going to throw money around in the January transfer window?
3: Well, the January transfer window is always quieter. So I don't think it will be a surprise if that's for Spurs too, but there's quiet in terms of marquee or big name signings and there can still be movement and Tottenham have the opportunity to do that in a loan or invest in youth. And we've seen Chelsea do that already. So I think that Tottenham will bring in one or two, but I don't think that it's going to be a crazy, busy window. And Antonio Conte hinted at this. He's done his depth. He's made his multiple signings in a very efficient in terms of the time that they got them done in pretty early in the window he did all that in the summer so there's no point now in bringing in a backup player in many of the positions but if the right name becomes available you could still potentially see them move in the market they might strengthen defensively, they might strengthen creatively as well, in terms of a wide midfielder, and in terms of either a centre-back or a more established full-back that can kind of come straight in now. But it won't be a high volume, it won't be as busy as Chelsea, they, and fans might not like me constantly comparing, but I mean this solely in terms of table and now, not historically, they're where Newcastle are. They're both in the top four, they've Both got a bit of momentum. They're both scoring goals. They've both got now relatively big squads. You don't want to overly rock the boat. But I think the difference is that Newcastle are punching above their weight at the moment. They're on an incredible run of momentum and there'll be faith put in players that have got them there, like Almiron, like Bruno, like Joe Linton, like Trippier. Whereas I think that Tottenham could still do with an established player to bring into the squad to kind of freshen it up a bit and get that kind of momentum that Newcastle had from the back end of last season and had heading into the World Cup break. So that's why it might be a little bit busier. With the Conte contract, I've said many times, long before any recent reports, my understanding is that Antonio Conte is in no rush. And no rush is always code for Coy keeping Spurs waiting. And he's keeping Spurs waiting not out of necessarily any gamesmanship, but because he wants to see what happens. He wants to see what they win. He wants to see how they progress. He wants to see how things are funded. So it's very normal to brief a desire to sign. And Tottenham are always going to say a calmness at their end. But at the manager's side it's very normal to journalists to be briefing that nothing is close, that an offer could be tabled, but he'll take his time. And that's not panic. That is ultimately just a reflection of the fact that a manager like Antonio Conte, as I think you correctly alluded, is only going to stay invested at Tottenham Hotspur if the project is moving in the right direction. And that means on and off the field. So instead of signing now mid-season and then finding in four weeks' time People are annoyed by the January transfer window. People are annoyed that they've fallen outside of the top four. Hopefully none of this happens, by the way, but I'm giving you a doomsday scenario. And suddenly it looks ridiculous that he would sign so soon just to calm a few nerves. And maybe then Daniel Evie regrets giving him a pay rise and signing as well. So there's a lot of moving parts here. And I think it's normal, therefore, for the manager to say, I want to focus on football not going to leave it until the very last day but let's see where we are in February or March with any new signings that have come in in January because a contract like this can happen very quickly I can guarantee you that the financials Tottenham are offering and the length Tottenham plan to offer will be acceptable to Conte so we can say pretty confidently that the financials are not a problem here. He's not going to walk away because they didn't give him an extra 100K a year. It's a good wage. He's not going to walk away because they offered him two years and he wanted five years. He's going to walk away because he feels like he's either the wrong person for the job or he's the right person for the job. And Daniel Levy feels that it's not quite working out. And if any friction builds, whether on or off the field, and we're talking hypothetically now, then at that point, They'll go their separate ways. But it's not, from what I understand it, something that Antonio Conte is thinking about. I know a lot of people are putting two and two together and they're saying maybe Juventus will come back. Maybe Max Allegri will go But look at Juventus now. They're under a financial investigation. They're out of the Champions League. They may not qualify for the Champions League next season. Tottenham is a much healthier club. It's a much more ambitious club. It's a better funded club. It's a better structured club. And I don't see Antonio Conte going to Juventus purely out of sentiment. So my hunch is there's a bit of gamesmanship going on at the moment, but that Spurs are happy to wait a little bit because it's mutually beneficial to both Levy and and Antonio Conte, to let this sit for a little bit to get a better understanding of what direction the season is heading in.
1: Ben, you mentioned about the investigations with Juventus. Um, is there any uh, latest information on Fabio Pratchett being under investigation and and what, what does it actually mean for him?
3: Shouldn't mean anything in practical terms. So, yes, he will be named and therefore involved and cooperative, according to those close to him. But there isn't a likelihood, even though some members of Juventus have kind of tried to pin it on him and the spending that took place during his tenure at the club, there isn't actually a likelihood of jail time. So be braced for something dramatic because the Turin prosecutors want to raid, want to summon. They want all of their information out there. But it's very important to state that first and foremost, an individual if the club is on trial, can't be punished outside of the charges at the club who are culpable for their actions when they were employed there in this kind of case, unless there is evidence that he undertook fraudulent behaviour separate to the club with knowledge of nobody else, in which case the club can scapegoat an individual. And in this instance, there's no suggestion of that. Evidence is still coming to light. There's a lot of finger pointing, but Juventus are not actually worried about the Turin prosecution. They don't believe that there will be any sanctions there that then have a knock-on effect to Serie A potentially offering a sporting sanction, such as a points deduction or a relegation. They're bound to say that legally within Serie A's power. It is possible. But the reason why they're unconcerned is because of the way the Italian court system works. And there are so many appeals, and obviously that can be through an individual or collectively as Juventus, that these kind of cases for alleged financial malpractice and fraud tend to time out. And that's why it's more about the information coming to light than it is necessarily about any criminal punishment that will significantly impact the club. But what was very intriguing was that in the statement, it was essentially admitted that the so-called salary manoeuvres and financial malpractices were open to interpretation, which coupled with the entire board resigning, to me, does to some extent admit culpability. So events is big worry. It's not so much about these individuals and the individuals, I don't think, are overly concerned because they'll be quite protected by the legal system. So once again, much like with the FIFA scandal under Seb Blatter, you might see a lot of clickbaity headlines of scandal, of drama and think, yikes. But then where does it go? And it can get lost in the legal system. But FIFA have also got a financial settlement with Juventus separate to the Turin prosecution and based upon financial information provided by Juventus to FIFA. So if new information comes to light that contradicts the information they were given when they agreed that settlement, that settlement will be terminated at which point Juventus could be in big, big trouble. And that's what opens the path to sporting sanctions, but it will be club specific, clearly not individual specific. And he's at Spurs now. So he's separate from it. So I think we're going to get a lot of name dropping and there will be an involvement because the years the case is taking place cover the time that he was at Juventus in part. And therefore, if asked to answer questions, to verify information, if named in documents, if accused of financial malpractice, he'll be there. So the only thing I think I would add, because there really is not individual concern, it's club concern and it's club FIFA concern, not club Turin prosecution concern. But the link is because the Turin prosecutors might unveil information that FIFA then use against Juventus. So the only final thing to say, and I don't think this is a realistic possibility, but how will Spurs react, regardless of what the court case says, if anything damning about conduct comes out there, particularly using the fraud word, and it is connected, how will Tottenham react to that knowing that he's now their employee and I think they'll react and just say there's two sides to every story there's denials and none of this has anything to do with us but we'll have to wait and see
1: Ben um, any news on the naming rights deal at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium because of course we played our first Premier League game there in April 2019 so of course uh, you know a good few years on um, still no naming rights deal being put in place still no naming rights
3: a lot of people on Twitter come to me with naming rights and a lot of people have fun with that because they've each got a name that they would like. But there's nothing I'm aware of at this point. Obviously, back in October, there was a feeling that There were advanced negotiations between Tottenham and Google and it was going to progress relatively quickly, but a couple of months have passed and nothing at this point. So I don't genuinely have a great deal to add on that in terms of any exclusive information. I talked to Spurs and people connected to their marketing department. They're very relaxed about the situation and there is also a feeling at the Tottenham end that it will be resolved in the new year. But I think that The lack of urgency is down to the fact that you don't have to get it done now. And usually with these contracts, it will be with a view to a full season. So if they got it done sooner rather than later, of course, you can just slap a new name on the stadium. But if, for example, it was just in place for 2023, 2024, I'm not convinced that Spurs would be particularly worried or bothered about that or feel at this point now in the season, they've lost out on a great deal of money.
1: I know they're asking for a record uh, fee, but I tell you what, I've been to the boxing there. I've been to the NFL, you know, the
2: say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100 percent online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
0: Picture the scene. All of your mates around. You've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order mug delivery now on the McDonald's app. There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See
1: mcdonalds.com. Concerts It is an incredible um, you know, venue. Um, and I'm surprised that, not, that a company hasn't come in yet. Um, ben, what's the latest on Harry Kane's contract? I'm sorry, you just cut out there a little bit. My
3: apologies.
1: I was going to say, Ben, what's the latest on Harry Kane's contract? Because, of course, he's going to be out of contract in the summer of 24. Um, Do you think he will be re-signing soon?
3: I think with Harry Kane, it again is a calm situation because there's not a feeling from sources that actually he wants to go anywhere, providing that the Tottenham project is progressing and providing that he's getting game time and goals. These links with Bayern Munich in particular are largely exaggerated from what I've always been told. Now, Kane will have the ability to use any suitor as leverage. And if he does that, he'll get the best possible deal. But I have been told many, many times at the Spurs end that they fully believe Harry Kane will sign a new deal at Tottenham, that he doesn't have a great interest in going to the Bundesliga and that he feels that Tottenham is moving in the right direction with him being integral to that. And Kane's got one last push in all likelihood. Yeah, he could remain at his goal-scoring peak into his mid-30s, but in terms of an actual big contract, it's probably only one. So it's either a renewal at Tottenham and a continuation of the project, and clearly he wants to win things, or alternatively he goes now because if he stays at Tottenham until... 32, let's say, is that type of move to a Champions League club still there? So people are always going to make that argument. We spoke before, didn't we, about Antonio Conte and does he want to win anything? Well, yes. Any manager that says they don't want to win something is ridiculous and shouldn't be in the job. But Conte has that ability to say qualifying for the Champions League one, then we'll look at the domestic cup competitions. From Kane's point of view, I genuinely just think... Desperately, some silverware. So that allows a club like Bayern to say, or PSG, though they're looking at slightly younger players and would prefer Rashford, we sign you, we pay you more than at Spurs, you play as many games, and within a season or two, you might walk away with four or six trophies. And then Kane has that ability when he retires to say there's something significant in the trophy cabinet. So that's the only. Caveat and naturally, there could be other suitors that come in for Harry Kane a little bit closer to home, and Chelsea might be one to watch in that respect. And before that gets sensationalized, I point out that Tottenham are in control, and Tottenham would have every ability to say, No, we're not selling you to a Premier League rival, simple as that. But that doesn't mean that those rivals still can't make the inquiries, it would quite clearly be audacious. But I point out Not that this should be relevant, but I said it when Pochettino was a free agent and Chelsea were looking at two candidates, Potter, their number one choice. But they allocated a second choice, even though they knew they wanted Potter, Pochettino, and they approached him. And why did they do that? Partly out of due diligence and partly because all of the Chelsea hierarchy, like Pochettino, because before they moved for Chelsea, their interest was in Spurs and there are Tottenham fans as well on the Chelsea board. So that doesn't mean that you put your fan cap on and just say, I'm going to be adamant and chase after Harry Kane because that's not business sense. And this is the type of thing right at the top of the show when we were discussing it and I was saying on Twitter, you always get someone lift a little bit and take you out of context. So I reiterate this very clearly that Tottenham in all likelihood will not want Harry Kane to go to any Premier League rival. They will laugh off any approaches simple as that. But that doesn't mean that Chelsea can't just try their luck for the heck of it. And Harry Kane is exactly the kind of player that they would absolutely love at their football club. Arsenal would love Harry Kane at their football club, especially with Jesus injured, because he's a world-class player. But Tottenham are in control of this is the point I'm trying to make. And as a consequence, they believe that Kane is very happy and very settled. And watch out for the reaction as well, in terms of what the club do after the unfortunate missed penalty at the World Cup, because sometimes when a player is renewing, and we're definitely going to see this with Saka after his heartache for his country in the previous um, time when he was uh, unfortunately the victim of horrible uh, racial abuse. Um, The club came back, put his arm around him, and now a renewal is up And there's a sort of feeling that it's not just about the football. It's about the fact that this club proved themselves to be a family. This proved to be the place where domestically, after international heartache and uh, a bit of personal failure in Saka's case, um, for which he was wrongly um, and despicably subject to abuse, um, the club made sure they picked him up. And when he comes back to sign now, he's not forgotten that. And I think it's the same with Kane as well, that he knows he loves Spurs. He knows he wants to win things at Spurs, and he knows he wants to be the focal point and the leader for that. And what's the best thing that Kane can do now to pick himself up? It's score goals and win something for Spurs. And if he does that and enjoys his football again, and everyone at Tottenham, from the players to the coaching staff, to the fan base, to the board, rallies around him and goes, listen, Harry, if there's any doubt here, if there's any memories of that unfortunate missed penalty, um, you know you're a quality player. You're going to bounce back. You're a leader. You're a goal scorer. You're a a, a great personality on and off the uh, field. Um, And if they remind him of that and he hits some form for Spurs, there should be no reason then why Tottenham aren't in an even stronger position with any contract renewals. So uh, personally talking to sources and um, we know that Tottenham sources will have to speak optimistically. So as a journalist, you have to take these with a pinch of salt but sources I speak to at Spurs are very calm about the situation. They don't believe there's that much in the buy-in uh, links other than leverage, and they do believe that Harry Kane uh, will sign a new deal. So that's all very positive, uh, but we always have to take contract renewals with a pinch of salt when information comes from the club side because the club's never going to tell you that they're pessimistic about a player re-signing, especially not one like Kane. Um, otherwise, all hell would break loose with the fan base.
1: Ben, another player um, out of contract very soon is club captain Hugo Lloris. He's had a good 10 years at Spurs. Of course, not won a trophy at the club, um, sadly. Um, any news on any goalkeepers that Spurs are looking at uh, to replace Hugo Lloris long-term?
3: I think that, as you say, Tottenham need a Lloris succession plan. It won't be a new thing either. By the way, they will have been scouting a, a few players over the course of the last two or three windows. Is a little-known fact that When clubs buy a player, the first thing a department within that club do is draw up a list of replacements for that player. And that's just due diligence because you're working two, three, five, seven windows ahead. Even with a young player, you might think you get 10 years out of them like Tottenham have done with Lloris. But how do you know that someone's not going to come in with an offer and they're going to leave sooner than expected and you need a backup plan? So... There's a few names I think that Tottenham will consider. Everton's Jordan Pickford is one for sure if we're looking at a Premier League player. And I know that Tottenham are big admirers of him. Emmy Martinez is another. Not exactly of the right age or profile, but... Goalkeepers obviously play a few more years and I think that Tottenham might be in the conversation there, but Villa are absolutely adamant that he wasn't available before the World Cup, he's had a great World Cup, he won't be available after the World Cup and it's the same, by the way, to answer a two-for-one with Alexis McAllister as well. Of course, Tottenham liked the player, they actually scouted him back in January, so it's a bit more long-standing than people realise, but he's contracted until 2025, Brighton have also the option to extend for a year. So just because of the World Cup, they really don't need to do anything in terms of keeping the player. They can just tell him, congratulations on winning the World Cup. You're still a Brighton player. And it's the same with Moises Caicedo too. So there's a few challenges in the short term here. The other name that is worth looking at, although Manchester United are more seriously considering him, is Jan Sommer as well. And then let's wait and see whether Tottenham go down a slightly younger route which is obviously a succession plan so you've got two options you either find somebody who is in late 20s through to mid 30s and you're either bringing in competition or you're bringing in somebody on a three four season plan or you're saying who is out there that is actually going to give us that 10 years that lorise had and with a goalkeeper, I think there is that possibility to do that because they just have that longevity. The final name I would mention that Tottenham scouted during the World Cup, uh, along with a few other clubs. Uh, one of them was Chelsea. One of them was Ajax, is the Croatia goalkeeper Dominic Livakovic, who was unlucky not to be the goalkeeper of the tournament. I think it was just that strange scenario where the three best goalkeepers of the tournament arguably reached the final stages and two of them were in the final in Luis and Martinez. And whoever won the final, especially with it going to penalties, always stood a chance of being named the top goalkeeper. And Emmy Martinez was outstanding in the shootouts. But you look at Livakovic, and he made a string of fine saves. He made more saves than any other goalkeeper and was also deserving of that. Now, he is only 27, So you could definitely get six or seven years out of him. And there's a feeling that it may be very difficult for Dinamo Zagreb to hang on to him. He has Champions League experience too. It would certainly be a step up playing in the Premier League, but he's proven he's capable of that in a short period of time at a World Cup. And my understanding with Tottenham anyway is all they've done is scout him with a view to working out what the consistency of performance is like. And they're going to have to wait and see If they think he's the kind of player that can be taken from Dinamo Zagreb and find Premier League form. And let's not forget when we're talking about Emi Martinez, his form has been quite inconsistent. His journey to play for Argentina has taken some time. So what clubs shouldn't do and don't do, by the way, even though fans do, is be lured in by the World Cup, be lured in by box office names that have had a good three weeks. Clubs are more sensitive clubs, if they come in for Leverkovic, they will have done so because they looked at him months before, not just because he had a good World Cup. So there is the odd occasion where a player, particularly a young player can pique your interest and your journey to scout them starts during the World Cup and you might find that with a Saudi player uh, maybe a Tunisian player, Moroccan player of a younger age, but if they're of an older age, they're known and then you just have to determine whether you need to move in January because there's a volume of interest. And I think, say, Unahi is a good example of that at Guerre, Or whether actually you saw them during the World Cup, but you can wait. And that's when you start doing a bit more due diligence to work out if they're worth moving for. But Tottenham have got goalkeeper options for sure. And uh, as we've known for a while now, uh, Lloris' replacement is needed.
1: Um. Ben, what do you make of uh, Lucas Moura's situation? Because he's out of contract at the end of this season. And from what I understand, um, Spurs could um, extend it by another year. Um, Would you expect him to leave in this January window or indeed at the end of the season?
3: I think that is the plan with Lucas Moura, that Tottenham would prefer to extend it. But it's all about the player. And does he have that desire Therefore, especially as Spurs make more and more and more signings to stay at Tottenham. So the Tottenham preference is an extension for sure. They want to keep that depth. But the player perspective is completely different because he's been limited to a support role this season. I think off the top of my head, he's only started two games
1: in all... Very little game time. So if you're more Say again, sorry. I was saying very, very little game time for Lucas Moura this season.
3: Very little game time, yeah. I mean, I think it is only two starts in all competitions from the top of my head. And a key indicator of what the player might be thinking um, when you look at these mid-season friendlies as well. So if you can't even get game time there, then he's going to feel completely out of the picture. I really don't want to let that level of experience and what he could offer in game management and in a squad player go. That's my understanding. Uh, but um, his form hasn't been good in limited appearances. Um, yeah. I can't think of a goal or an assist off the top of my head. Uh, Tottenham fans will be able to correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I can't think of much of a contribution from Lucas Mora. So um, the reason why Tottenham would like to extend is just because... Um, it keeps hold of somebody uh, that they know can still contribute and has that experience. Uh, But if the right offer came in um, or if the contract just runs, it's going to be very difficult for them to hang on to him at the moment because I just don't think more is happy.
1: Would you expect any Spurs players to go out on loan in the January window? And I'll, I'll give you some names. Brian Hill. Uh, Jed Spence, because he's had such little game time under Antonio Conte so far. Jaffa Tanganga, we've, we've seen lots of links with him uh, in the previous window. He didn't go out on loan or get sold. Would you expect any of those to go out? And, and Pape Matasar is another.
3: Yeah, there's a few, isn't there? There's Premier League for sure. And Jed Spence is an interesting one because when we were approaching the World Cup, I was asking a number of sources because, as you say, there was just no real significant involvement and tottenham were always adamant that he is into the squad he'd be part of the squad he had a role to play and usually when clubs like a player but they appreciate they need game time they're very quick to tell you that they will be uh loaned out and that wasn't necessarily the case with spence uh a while back um the tide is changing and This is another thing, by the way, about Antonio Conte and the gamesmanship internally of how a window works, that if loan offers are coming in, uh, the manager in terms of the gamesmanship may well be saying with a loan, please, because then it clears up a bit of squad space and it gives them leverage to then say to Daniel Levy, this is why we need two or three, because we're going to be shipping out two or three. And of course, a loan might just be a straight loan, but with certain players, it might be a loan to buy even a obligation expense for me, I think, um, has to go out on loan if he's not going to get any more uh, game time because he just hasn't um, featured enough. It's as simple as um, that. He did play in the friendlies against Motherwell and uh, the Peterborough game as well. So there is still um, an option to... Uh, potentially um, use him a little bit more. But I don't think that those preseason friendlies are an indication with Spence that he's suddenly going to be um, thrown in. Um, it might be the case that Antonio Conte uh, prioritises a uh, fullback or uh, right-sided wing-back. Um, so all of this, I think, um, could um, lean towards the right, maybe after Spurs have done some business, uh, allowing him to go out. Um, But as I said before, I asked around on Spence a few months ago uh, and there wasn't any indication at this point. So right now, to be accurate at the no loan deal, um, no offer, um, no feeling that uh, he will go out. But let's wait and see what happens later in the window, because you have to also think about the player going to be happy for an entire season, basically not getting any kind of game time. Um, With um, Pape Madassar, which is probably the other of the names that you mentioned that I know, um, there is a lot of interest uh, from outside of the Premier League and from within the Premier League. Uh, Leicester were one club that made an inquiry towards the back end of last window. Uh, specifically on loan, Leicester's finances were really difficult and they were embroiled in a um, battle over Wesley Fafana. And finally, they got a fee and a big chunk up front and that allowed them to sign Face, who's been excellent for Leicester. But they wanted to do a bit more, it was not possible. And then outside of the Premier League, uh, Cremonese um, were another club that were looking at him and Tottenham are having none of it. So now we're going to have to wait and see whether the perspective three or four clubs in uh, Serie A. And uh, I'm also told Valladolid Dolid are very interested as well um, in the player. But Tottenham's perspective um, last window was no chance. If they've softened on that now... Then I think that we might be looking at a few destinations actually, unless Leicester came back. And I don't think they will at this point, because Leicester are more stable, Leicester looking for more senior, Leicester looking at different positions now. But outside of the Premier League, I still think there's that interest from Mets. I think there is interest from Valladolid. Uh we wait and see whether Cremonese come back in as well. But um this is the difference I think now with comparative to in previous windows, the Antonio Conte seems to have the autonomy, he seems to have the authority, he seems to have the yes-no with that kind of thing. Um, so it, it will largely fall on the manager and whether his perspective has changed.
1: Ben, um, in the last January transfer window, of course, we signed Kuliseski and Benton Kerr, which have proved to be fantastic players for Tottenham. Um, we were very close to signing Sofran Amrabat um, is this a deal that Spurs could go and revisit and try and sign the Moroccan star?
3: Yeah, I think to some extent. I mean, Amrabat's available in the market and had a phenomenal World Cup. I've not seen a team of the tournament yet, not and uh, but he'll surely be in there uh, along with his teammate Unahi, who's On Guerre. And uh, Unahi is, I think, easier to. Um, get in January. I think that um, the, the um, sale of Amrabat is actually just Fiorentina. And Fiorentina hate January windows. And if you remember, they lost Vlaevic to um, Juventus amidst interest from Arsenal. So a lot's going to depend on Fiorentina and how bullish they are around price. Uh, but the other thing, unfortunately, from Tottenham's point of view, is that there are other Premier League clubs as well. And Liverpool are and probably a little bit ahead of Tottenham in this race at this point, as I understand it. So Amrabat might be one of those, if he doesn't end up at Spurs and they don't move in January, the, the, they rue the fact that they were not able to get that done in a pre They may already have him and they may already be able to boast about the World Cup that he just had. But I sense that there's two hurdles here. Uh, one is the fact that Fiorentina sources are still saying they want to hang on to the player. They know that they're going to have to cash in on him at some point, but let's wait and see whether it's the winter. Definitely a realistic possibility that we do see a winter sale, um, but someone's almost going to have to pay above the market value, in uh, otherwise they have to wait. But watch Liverpool on this front because um, I get the sense that if we're looking at who's more advanced now rather than historically, Liverpool are ahead of Spurs in this race.
1: Ruslan Malinowski is another player that keeps coming up uh, again and again um, in all of these reports that get published. Um, Any truth in Spurs trying to sign the Atalanta playmaker?
3: Yeah, he's a great player. Malinowski... And the only against him is maybe their age. I think he's 29 at the moment. And I'm not sure that there's too much to this. West Ham have also looked and could be in the race. But Atalanta are the of big... I suppose the best way of um, maybe putting it is that they're the big sticking point because they've got history here and Atlanta didn't like the manner in which Timothy Castagna left for Leicester. And they're a little bit reticent about selling to a Premier League club now, and they don't like mid-season sales either. So that's two things to put out there. Serious. So is the West Ham. Uh, they've been looking at the player for quite some time. Um, they like the profile. They want to strengthen in that area. So this is a clue that it's an area where Spurs strengthen. strengthen. Um, not the best age, but still at a peak age. But obviously you're still signing somebody that's going to enter into their 30s relatively soon. Um, price is going to be an issue. and um, It won't be a sky high price uh, because of the age, but it will be a, um high price for the age, given the contract situation, uh, which, as I understand it, might be pushing 15 million pounds. I know that fans listening to me now uh, will raise their eyebrows and say, well, that isn't a high price. Um, but again, it's a high price mid-season um, for a 29-year-old. Um, but whether overall that's still a bargain can be seen. Uh, David Moyes made direct contact with the player, Um, so West Ham are in the race, and um, Tottenham, as I understand it, um, are still in a consideration phase. So we'll see how quickly they they move in January, but uh, there's nothing advanced to the point where um, we can necessarily uh, say that Tottenham are in a club-to-club negotiation. Uh, But what they have done is done a lot of due diligence at the players' end – uh they like the fact that they're a dead ball specialist and they believe that if they move in the market, they're a level above their rivals, and that's why they have confidence and no rush to get into that club to club negotiation. Um, because the other suitors, West Ham, some will tell you Nottingham Forest. Uh the final thing I would say is keep an eye out for Olympic Marseille. Uh they may be a late entrant into this race and uh quite ambitious. So that could turn the player's head to some extent, but they're not going to be able to match them. So I think this is why Tottenham are confident that they can do this one on their own terms. They don't need to move day one of the transfer window. Uh, They have time. And uh, if they move in the market on a club-to-club level, having um, later the um, player-to-club level, then uh, they will feel confident that they can obviously um, get buy-in from the player and then it's all about whether they think that sort of 13 to 15 million uh, is value. And uh, my personal opinion is it is, um, because he um, loves to get forwards. He uh, chips in with the odd goal here and there. Uh, he provides um, his fair share of assist on last season. Um, the goal scoring tally was good. I think it's back to back seasons where he chipped in with, 10-plus goals. This season, um, he hasn't been as clinical, uh, but still very much contributed for the team. Um, Question mark, um, or my two question marks, is one around price. Um, And I come back to that because I think the price that Atlanta paid was close to €15 million. And that was only three years ago. So they're going to want to break even at minimum if they sell him. Um, So that's why it becomes £15 million. And, you know, fans will always say, why are we quibbling over it's still a good price? And that might be true. But Tottenham aren't really that team that have had that history of just throwing money above the odds. So that's one thing. My other thing is just whether at Premier League level he'll get pulled out of position too much, the discipline in free-flowing football uh, there to succeed at Premier League level and um, be significant within Tottenham. Because what they want is not depth. They they want experience. He ticks that box. And they want players they can try. the way, Uh, it has been such a great signing, a very un-Spurs-like, a very un-Levy-like signing, uh, which again is indicative of the fact that Antonio Conte is starting to have that control. Um, so we're going to actually, I wouldn't say it's a certainty, but what I would say is that um, Tottenham feel like if they do enter the race, they can win the race.
1: Ben, any truth in Spurs' interest in Pedro Poro?
3: made a great deal of inquiries about, to be perfectly honest with you. So I can't give you any significant information there. Um, or exclusive information. I know that there are reports out there, certainly a day or two, that would suggest that Tottenham have made inquiries about the sporting player. But this is normal. And think about how the window works. You don't just inquire about who you want. You also inquire about who you don't want because clubs love assessing the market and having yardsticks. So if you want player A, you often inquire about player B In order just to get like for like profiles. So when you go to player A, you say, We could get player B, and he's the same age as you, he's the same, cheaper than you. And these are the kind of conversations. And this is why the market is always chaotic. And as a journalist, you have to navigate the reality that there will be red herrings out there because a legit Spurs conversation might not be to buy, it might be leverage in negotiation. But once again, what link is this it's with a right wing back and a very talented one as well so that gives you that clue again and also it puts a question mark around jed spence and whether he will or won't be loaned out and that may mean in this case there is an element of substance to it and as i said before because we can't ask about everyone at every club. I haven't made any personal inquiries on uh, Pedro Porro to Spurs. Uh, I will do so and update you. But what I do know about the player is that he's very versatile because he can play as right winger. I think he's only 23 uh, years of age. Uh, He's already won a cap uh, for Spain as well. Um, And having had a, a very successful loan spell... Uh, with Sporting, he made that, uh, and Manchester City fans will um, obviously know of him um, as well. And let's not forget, by the way, when he joined Manchester City, um, even though he wasn't able to break through at that club, um, it was for in excess of £10 So that's the other thing about all of this, that if Tottenham are going to proceed, you can bet your bottom dollar that the fee is going to be relatively high. So I'm aware that there's reports that say that he's close to joining. And uh, I know that those reports come. So let's wait and see whether they move fast on that. I know that he was a Real Madrid um, target, loosely speaking, as well. Um, and you can understand why they would be interested in him, uh, because you've got full banking. Uh, you've got young and you've got burgeoning uh, reputation. So, it would in theory make a lot of sense. And again, all of this substance is around that fullback, that right back, that right, that inverted right back, whatever you want to call it, um, which I think tells you when you add it all up, that's an area that Spurs will try and strengthen in January. But I honestly can't tell you um, much more. But what I would say is I'd be pretty intrigued to learn of what the asking price was because as i said before go back to man city 10 11 million um i think if sporting were to sell and i'm talking more broadly uh because i haven't made the inquiry i haven't made the inquiry i've not made the inquiry specific to spurs and pedro Porro. but i do know generally is that sporting are not going to be selling him for that 10 11 million that 20 million i think you look to get any kind of deal done. And um, is that market value? Um, do Spurs think that that is a uh, investment for the now and for the future? And if so, they might move.
1: Ben, last question for you. Um, you said earlier that you think the Spurs will sign one or two players in the upcoming January transfer window, which of course opens in ten days' time. Uh, me as a Spurs fan, um, if I was to choose the positions, I would certainly go for a right wing back, because I think that is our, our weakest area, and I would go for a centre back. That's me. What do you think Antonio Conte wants? And what do you think, uh, what positions do you think that will come in if it is two players?
3: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. A centre back and a uh, full back, but maybe backing in pro S or a more versatile full back. As I say, the uh, advantage with Pedro Porro is that he can comfortably play as a right winger, as an inverted full back, as a right back. And um, as he gets more defensive discipline systems too. So uh, there's a real appeal there um, to change the player. Um, and you may. Um, remember that um, in the past, Tottenham have been linked with Zaniolo as well, who... In fact, he's had uh, desperately bad luck with injuries. Uh, But again, Tottenham look at that profile and they say, well, we could rein him in. Uh, We could make him way more defensive minded or we could go to the opposite extreme and uh, allow him to have that freedom. So uh, that type of player... Um, keeps coming up in Spurs conversations that I have. Uh, A player that can be changed, a player that can be made more versatile, a player that can be used in different capacities depending on game management. So wing-back is one, for sure, 100%. And I think because of where Spurs were in the summer with their chase for a centre-back, that can't be discounted. I think that it's going to be really difficult for Tottenham to get Bastone very happy, settled, uh, but it, the name keeps cropping up in conversations with club officials, with scouts. Um, it's been made very, very clear by Bastoni's agent that he absolutely loves Serie A Inter and interview him as a future captain. So yeah. it would have to be a big, big offer. Um, and I think that one might be one more for the summer, but it's one to watch. Uh, I don't think there'll be anything with um, these loose links with a... Um, but once again, a loose link can be quite interesting because it tells you the position. Um, Maguire, centre-back. Bastoni, centre-back. Skriniar, who Tottenham have looked at. And um, PSG are favourites for, um, again, um, centre-back. So that probably being that if you've only got two, you bring in a centre-back, you bring in a, a right wing-back. But, but don't discount more... Um, midfield-related players. Um, I don't think Alexis McAllister is possible, by the way. Let me just put that out there. Um, might be. And um, we know that um, Tottenham like the player. Uh, we know that uh, within that Tottenham recruitment team, there's a history with the player. And we know that Juventus might be forced to sell somebody in January. So, uh, And uh, I think McKenney is very open to a Premier League move. It's quite funny how... Uh, Christian Pulisic at Chelsea called up McKenney and said um do you think I might be able to get it to Serie A and at that point Juventus were toying with a loan option uh for Christian Pulisic and it never came off they never made a bid they never made an offer um but McKenney and Pulisic were quite keen in teaming up um but the irony is that McKennie was also asking Pulisic about the Premier League and saying you the Premier League so Let's see whether something comes of Weston Uh That might be an area where Tottenham look to strengthen. I don't think it will happen in the January window, but um, increasingly, even though Newcastle are kind of um, the most advanced because they put down an offer last summer, uh, I wouldn't rule out James Madison. Uh, Leicester want him to sign a new deal. Uh, they're adamant that um, they don't want him to leave mid-season, uh, but that's a position Tottenham as far as uh, maybe the summer is concerned. And Madison might creep into the Tottenham conversation, uh, particularly if they get Champions League football. So um, it's not impossible that they would look further up the field. But I, I agree with what you say, that if it's only two centre-back, um, but if it's three, then we have to start looking at players like Weston McKenney and seeing whether Tottenham uh, go down a more attack-minded route. And of course, if they feel like Mora is going to go, and or if doesn't replicate his international form uh, for Spurs, um, as far as goals return is concerned, then as you get towards the summer, you suddenly start looking at wingers, at wide forwards, at creative minded players, at box to box midfielders that can weigh in with goals. And it's interesting for me because if Spurs are heading in the right direction and they're window planning and they need that, that more marquee name, that more forward thinking name. This is where they start having to be in the conversation uh, along with Chelsea, along with Man City, along with Liverpool box office names to kind of prove that they can um, get that marquee signing that comes straight into the side. And um, I'm not a Spurs fan. So uh, maybe I speak out of turn here, but if I was a Spurs fan, um, regardless of who the name is, I would want summer. I think January is a bit different, but the summer if they qualify for the Champions League, I would want to see my team win the race for, as you said, right at the top of the show, that Klinsmann-like player that indisputably, you're saying they start and they improve my team. And there's not many players out there in that category, of course, that singularly, individually, if they get thrown into your Tottenham team, uh, one, you kind of gloat because you're like, we know that Arsenal are peeved off about off about this but two we know that instantly in that summer if we sign them they improve it and if you look at the list of players that tottenham are being linked with um some are phenomenal young talents some have got great potential uh some but i, I don't think you can categorically argue till you're blue in the face that McKenney improves tottenham uh beyond belief single-handedly um of course he might of course he'd be a great signing Um, But it's not the same category as Declan Bellingham as um, somehow getting hold of like a a Marcus Rashford style uh, player that's touted. So I I think that's the point here is, um, is there a name out there like that? That every Spurs fan or most Spurs we're so excited about this player because we know that they're elite. We know that they improve us instantly. We know they start every game. We know they're young or young-ish. And who knows, maybe Alexis McAllister grows into that player over the next season or two, but uh, the summer. And um, let's see whether Spurs, in the meantime, make any more um, creative minded January signings to add a little bit more goals, um, especially, as I say, if they feel like come the summer uh, there'll be some outgoings.
1: I completely agree, Ben. Whatever players that Spurs do sign in January, they've got to be able to walk into the starting eleven and improve the Tottenham Hotspur team uh, for Conte. Um, Ben, I can't thank you enough for all of your time uh, this evening. I I tell you, I could talk to you about football all all evening, but we both haven't got the time for that, sadly. Uh, But I'd love to get you back during the January transfer window if if you'd like to come back.
3: Yeah, I'd love to. I'm glad that you've enjoyed it. Reach out to me, any Spurs fans, if you've got any questions. I'll always do my best. Uh, Everyone, hopefully, has enjoyed it, except my dog, who, uh, as you can see behind me, um, I've sent to sleep. So, uh, obviously, she's not as excited about we are as the January transfer window.
1: Ben, please please tell all the viewers and listeners where they can find you on social media and what they can expect from you in the next couple of weeks.
3: Yeah, a bit of a break, actually, before January starts. I uh, hope everyone has a great Christmas or festive period, Hanukkah as well, and a happy New Year. Ben on Twitter, at BenDavidJacobs on TikTok. Uh, you won't see much on TikTok yet, but I expect to build uh, quite a lot of storytelling during the window in video formats on that. Uh, Instagram is ben David Jacobs, mostly just dog photos. For those of you really in North America, CBS... Covering the transfer window on our rolling news channel. It's a bit like Sky Sports News. It's called CBS Sports HQ. We've got a podcast called House of Champions, which will have daily transfer. Romano is also part of that as well, uh, along with James Benj, Jonathan Johnson, and Ian Joy. And um, naturally, uh, in January, um, when the Premier League starts, I'll be back covering that. Um, into the Champions League in February. A busy window and um, hopefully uh, some very positive Spurs uh, news to bring you over the next two
1: weeks. Well, Ben, thank you so much, as I say, and have a lovely Christmas. And uh, thanks for watching, everybody. Thanks for listening and thanks for all of your support on the channel. I will see you on the next one. Until then, come on you, Spurs.